I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. mind. Hello and welcome to To The Republic, a show dedicated to history, civics, and U.S. institutions. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts, but way much more for yours. Yes, China. And that is China. We're going to explore many of the topics and issues surrounding China's current rise on the international stage and how that affects the United States. Mm-hmm. I just thought we would just, you and I are both pretty well versed in this topic. I know mm-hmm. you've studied it a lot in school. Me, I, we kind of take a different uh, approach on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you study much more from China's like perspective and mm-hmm. how that relates to um, the world. And me, I kind of come, I like to come at it from like a th- real theoretical perspective. So we'll talk a little bit about Thucydides trap and we'll talk about some of the other, how it affects international organizations, all that. And then we'll just talk more about the Belt and Road Initiative, which is really important and how China is formulating their foreign policy mm-hmm. under uh, current, um, under current leader Xi Jinping. Um, but before we start, I need to mention that you can find record- all of our recordings for our shows as episodes on KXRW, um, Vancouver.org, as well as our other station shows like Filibusters, The Common Good, and Chasing Shadows. If you like what we're doing, please consider donating to KXRW. Any contribution will go a long way to ensure that this area continues to have a voice. So we would like to thank you for listening, and now to our topic. Matt, would you like to kick us off? Yes, I would. Um, so today we thought we'd talk a lot about China, specifically the rise of China. Uh, many of you may have heard of this. Um, it's not just a, a colloquial term for China getting taller. It's specifically for um, them becoming a more um, powerful presence on the international stage. Yeah. Um, I think what we should really kick off, though, is a little bit of history um, for China, uh, specifically looking at the uh, mid to early part of the um, 19th or 20th century, specifically with the fall of the Qing government real quick um, and the rise of the Communist Party of China. The, during the Second World War, there was a big schism between the two parties that had m- most control over Chinese politics, which were the Kuomintang, which was a, um, a, a more conservative government. Okay. And then there was uh, the CCP, which stands for the Chinese Communist Party. And they hated each other. But they kind of united for a brief period during the Second World War to fight the Japanese. Mm -hmm. But the moment... Common enemy. Yeah. But the moment the Japanese were defeated, they went into a brutal civil war. And the Guomindong, correct me if I'm wrong, that's more that was those that was the Western backed faction within yes. China. Okay. Yes. They were the Nationalist Party of China. Gotcha. And then um, the CCP was backed by the Soviets. Okay. Um, and obviously because the Soviet Union was a communist state. Um, but the important thing to get from this is that China in the the latter part of the nineteenth century to the early to mid part of the twentieth century was in an extremely turbulent period. Okay. There's a lot of endemic corruption. There was a lot of uh, threats from border countries like Japan. There were two wars, specifically the Japan, the first Sino, and the second uh, Sino-Japanese mm-hmm. War um, that really reduced China's presence in the world. Okay, There was a big um, move by Mao when the Communist Party took um, power in the late 40s to revitalize China, to bring it back into the world stage as the leader in communism. Mm-hmm. And so you heard things like the Great Leap Forward, um, the uh, Cultural Revolution, big movements trying to revamp 
China, kind of make China great again. And were those more domestic or foreign policy? Originally goals? domestic. Okay. And that, um, but you saw a shift with um, uh, Deng Xiaoping. He um, uh, he really pushed for hiding your power, keep quiet, but mm-hmm. get, build your power, but don't let your enemies know it. And you started to see a more opening up towards um, uh, foreign um, powers, specifically like to the U.S. I believe it was. Um, uh, Richard Nixon went over to um, China mm-hmm. on one of his visits, and that was that was under Dang or Mao when that was Nixon, Dang. Dang. That was okay. Dang. So when did that power transition happen between Mao and Dang? Well, there was a big power struggle between them um, for for several years, um, uh, but, but they they fought together during World War II, and they were close friends. If but, I understand, yeah, but there was yeah. a schism between them. Um, not to go too much into the history, but um, really, Deng Xiaoping was purged from the communist party at mm-hmm. one point but eventually once mao passed away um Deng sh- quickly found power towards the end of mao's life um and 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 eventually became the leader of the communist party of china the important thing to know is there was a period of transition between this kind of more national growth isolationism under mao and slowly under Deng going forward there was much more concern on building an international presence Okay. Um, so Deng Xiaoping kind of started of it. It went, you know, more with like you know Jiang Zemin. Um, after him, it, really with Jiang Zemin, though, you'll see the, the height of it. Um, okay. I think he was a successor or two successors after um, Deng Xiaoping, um, and he really focused on building Chinese power, both internally and externally, investing in foreign um, countries, um, building companies to um, invest in like oil drilling in the South China Sea. Um, but he really started it all. And then okay. it kind of progressed forward into now with Xi Jinping where it's full gas, you know, full pedal down, mm-hmm. you know, gas pedal down, you know, develop, 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 build international relations and really try to supplant the U.S. as the, the leader in, I guess, the free world, so to speak. Sure. So you, you think that China's ultimate intentions is to become the sole world hegemon? I think they believe they've always like had the rifle they're the rightful heirs of being the world hegemon because for thousands of years they were. China was uh, probably the most dominant power for thousands of years, really until the latter half of the, you know, or until like colonialism with the Europeans when they really started expanding. Um, China really ha- was the center of the world, at least in, in China's eyes. Um, well, in terms of like just cultural transmission and mm-hmm. trade, yeah, China, yeah, 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 China was yeah. Yeah, definitely had the uh, the corner market on on a yeah. lot of those things, yeah. and they definitely had a, a very big sphere of influence. And also, um, yeah, oh, sorry, just not to interrupt. Yeah. Um, just to also, I want to think it's important is that China has always been afraid of periphery powers, like for example, the Mongols, the Japanese, people on the outside who could cause direct harm to their hegemony in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I think that also still plays into what's going on today is that they want to make sure that they are really the the power in East Asia and not just East Asia around the world where that people won't try to pull a you know second Sino-Japanese war sure. and, and try to attack them because it's been de- historically devastating mm-hmm. for them when in China's internally weak and there's strong external enemies because historically speaking, they've had to you know, go through drastic transformations as a, as a result of that. Well, they've built a wall to try to protect themselves yeah, from they periphery did. powers. <laughs> and to be fair, they failed to realize, just as a side note, that the Mongols could ride around it. Yeah. And they also later destroyed it. <laughs> but that's neither here nor Yeah, there. we don't need to talk about yeah. walls. Um, so, yeah, just to real, just really quick, uh, hegemon means that... You, hegemon means in, in political science that there isn't a, uh, a entity that can rival in power by mm-hmm. itself 
to the current world power. So yeah. when we say hegemon or like the current world hegemon, that means that globally there isn't one country. The United we would both agree that the United States yeah. is, has enjoyed world hegemony since the fall of the Soviet Union, yeah. and that there isn't one state or country by mm-hmm. itself that can rival U.S. power. Correct. So that's where we're, that's what we mean when we're talking about hegemony. Mm-hmm. So now currently China has instituted a foreign policy that can really be dis- really be described as expansionist. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of that, they have a policy called the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. And that essentially means it's one belt, one road. It's kind of confusing. Yeah. But it means tr- establish, reestablishing tr- a trade route over land and over sea. And that means they're going to, in- they invest, you mentioned it earlier, they invest in um, developing nations and to build infrastructure. Mm-hmm. On the surface, it sounds great. It's been fraught with all sorts of problems, both for the borrowers and the lender mm-hmm. in this case. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit, but really I think we need, in order to talk about the BRI and understand the BRI, we need to kind of get, we need to talk a little bit about, about the man behind the curtain, Yeah, and that's Xi Jinping. Yeah, and so Xi Jinping um, really has complete control over the Communist Party of China. Uh, specifically, um, I believe it was two years ago or a year ago, um, he pretty much firmly established that um, he. I think he got rid of the term limits, and yes. um, he's very much consolidated yeah, power consolidated around power, himself. Yeah, much more. I mean, in the communist party, communist party, power is consolidated, but Xi has taken steps to consolidate power around him, much like Mao did, because yes. there was a little bit of of power liberalization under Deng. And yes. then that has since been re-established around. Correct. So yeah, abolishing the term limits really um, consolidated the fact that Xi was going to be in power for a long time. Mm-hmm. And that he wanted to initiate um, policies that were pretty revolutionary for Chinese foreign policy and make sure that they were lasting. Um by doing this, um, the only real rival he had in the Chinese Communist Party was Jiang Zemin, who was the former leader of the CCP, who's still there. There's also Hu Jintao. Um, but really, the important thing to get from this is that Xi Jinping is the driver in the, driver, in, in the car for Chinese foreign policy. Mm-hmm. He is the one directing what's going on. Sure. There's a really good book written by Elizabeth Economy, and it's called The Third Revolution. And she basically posits that Xi's vision is a third revolution since the, commun- since the rise of the Communist Party in terms of its foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And it's getting back to more of that wanting to see China have its day in the sun again. And it wants, it mm-hmm. wants to, um, her, her argument is that Ultimately, that China, it wants to maybe not sur- ultimately supplant the United States, but it wants to be able to be in a position where it can't be influenced by by other yeah, major powers. Absolutely. And it wants, re- it wants at minimum, regional um, hegemony. So yeah. nowhere in this, it wants control in of this, of this southeast region mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah. Um, I also think what's important to think about when we're looking at East Asia is... Historically, China has been the state that ran East Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, though, and by, and by yeah. state, we mean country. Country, yeah, sorry. Yeah. They were the alpha in that region. Um, a lot of states around it, like Japan, Korea, Vietnam, uh, they were tributary states to China. So sure. historically speaking, they want to revitalize that status. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, like the Belt and Road is the first step into 
um, really supplanting themselves as, in that dominant position. Sure. Okay. So let's get into the into the BRI, yeah. the Belt and Road Initiative, a little bit. Let's get into a little bit of the uh, the ideas behind it, but then also how does it work out in practice? Yes. Do you want to get into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So the Belt and Road Initiative really is trying to build off of the old idea or, or the old um, Silk Road itself, um, but kind of revitalizing it in a Silk Road 2.0. Um, especially through a lot of Central Asia, um, leading into Africa, Europe. They really want trade to be directed to and from China mm-hmm. through this Belt Road Initiative, also over overseas too. This isn't just a, a, ge- a geographical um, land-based trade route sure. system. This is over air, water, you know, land. This is to be a, essentially the mega highway of trade. Mm-hmm. That's what they're trying to s- establish it as. Yeah, and um, the, BR, the Belt and Road Initiative, it's important to, to note because there's a lot of ways that developing nations can get loans for to build infrastructure. Yes. China has gone unilaterally by itself mm-hmm. and has established this lending program mm-hmm. where they'll come into a, any, basically they've opened themselves. Any nation that wants to be part of the Belt and Road can be part of the Belt and Road. Mm-hmm. And whereas the IMF, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank Group, which are these, the, uh, what they call they're called the Bretton Woods twins, and they were established by uh, the West after the fall after World War II to allow f- the rebuilding of Europe, but mm-hmm. then also to bring developing nations more and make them more modernized. Yeah. And but over time, loan conditionality is loan conditionality is a big play with those and what other countries have to do and have to change in order for them to receive that money and continue to receive that money. Whereas China offers a much more straightforward. We're not, we're not going to care about your corruption. We're not going to, we don't care that, that you have human rights abuses. We're not going to force you to change. We just want business business. Yeah. And so that gets, there's a lot of questions about that. Like mm-hmm. what kind of, what kind of role does that do? What kind of effect does that have on the borrowers? And over time, I think we're seeing with some of the hidden costs mm-hmm. that China has used to give themselves an advantage to the BRI has really left some developing nations like the, Mal- like the Maldives, like Sri Lanka and some others in a really desperate spot. Because China itself doesn't have infinite resources. They have to look abroad for a lot of their manufacturing needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also need to look abroad for building um, specific ports that they can have uh, free access to that will lower costs for manufacturing. Sure. Um, so for an example, I always like to bring up is Sri Lanka. Um, Sri Lanka, which is um, just south of India, it's the big island. If you're ever wondering what it looks like, is that big kind of you know acorn-looking island at the bottom of uh, India that um, is a real big highway for a lot of international trade because a lot of it leads through the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. They um, wanted to build a new port and they didn't really necessarily have the cash to do it, but they realized it would really revitalize their trade. Um, so the Chinese came in and they provided all the labor and all the material costs to build the port um, at the Sri Lankan expense. Mm-hmm. They had to pay for it. Um, and they gave them a loan that really they could never have realistically paid off. Yeah. And eventually the Sri Lankans defaulted on it and the Chinese essentially took ownership of the port. Yeah, they repossessed the port yeah. and now it's a Chinese naval base. Yeah. And which gives them military access to the Indian Ocean mm-hmm. and further expanding their reach westward. Yeah. Like the same thing with the Maldives. Uh, the, they, they built what was called the Chinese Maldives Friendship Bridge, which mm-hmm. connected the capital city on one island to them to their airport, which was on another island, which really inhibited trade in the Maldives because everything had to be ferried. Well, once that bridge was 
built, it allowed for traffic to, in, mm. in road transportation of major goods and services, which mm. really helped modernize the economy. It was electri- building electrical grids on outlying islands that hadn't had electricity before. Mm. They were doing a lot of seemingly good, but like you said, they saddled them with such debt and there's so many hidden costs that the China isn't upfront with where the, how much things are costing. And because as part of the BRI stipulation is, is that the Maldives can't use their own construction companies mm-hmm. with that money. It has to be a Chinese owned company. Yeah. They can hire Maldives workers, but it's ultimately, it's a Chinese owned company mm-hmm. that is doing the work. And that in itself can, can raise that raises costs because there's no, there's no competition. Yeah. Um, I think it's also important to realize that China wants to be the country that people turn to when they need projects done Mm -hmm. or they need loans um, because what they're trying to do is essentially capture resources and specifically you'll see it most egregious in Africa. Um, A good example would be um, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is under immense trouble. Um, There is civil war, there's endemic corruption, ethnic conflicts. I mean, it is a very difficult region in Africa to govern. Sure. Um, but what they do have is some of the largest deposits of natural resources like nickel, cobalt, um, important minerals for manufacturing, things that China needs. So essentially what they did is they would swoop in there, um, build them a mine, and then the Congolese government couldn't pay it back. And so China then has an effective monopoly on the mine and takes all the profits. Mm-hmm. Um, so really what they're doing is uh, some people uh, label this as neocolonialism. Neocolonialism colonialism is, a, is, I think, is a, is a perfect label for it. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what it is. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the BRI has had a, a, a ton of issues. Some states are starting to push back against it. We've been getting a little bit on the other side of the break, but um, we do need to take a break real quick and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll finish up talking about the Belt and Road Initiative and then plug it in the United States and see how macro changes to this to the structure of the international system can potentially maybe be leading to war between the United States and China. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you're listening to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. And we'll be right back. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics, Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. KXRW Community Radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at Boomerang Therapy Works, where exercise is medicine. At Boomerang, they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness. They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. On our last segment, we talked about uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative and what that means for what that means overall in what that is. Also, we talked about Chinese, Chinese history up until now, how we got to the point where China has switched its foreign policy to a more outward looking, mm-hmm. um, you know, policy structure. So 
Uh, going from here, I think we're going to wrap up our conversation on the Belt and Road Initiative and get a little bit into um, how the United States fits fits into this equation. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you had a few more thoughts on the Belt and Road? Yeah, I think we'll, we were leaving off on neocolonialism and um, debt trap diplomacy. I think the important thing to um, focus on is how badly in debt a lot of these countries are. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Angola, I mean, they're experiencing hyperinflation because they're trying to pay off the debts. Um, that they owe China. I mean, I, th- I, I mean, it's several hundred percent um, inflation rates mm-hmm. for um, their currency, which is just devastating the economy. Cameroon is also one of them where they, um, I mean, the inflation rate is skyrocketing because they cannot pay back the debt that they own. Uh, they owe China. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really important looking forward to see um, how the Belt and Road Initiative will modify, um, because I think it's also making other countries very wary because people are starting to realize that what this is, is debt trap diplomacy. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot, there has been a lot of pushback mm-hmm. from uh, the early borrowers, the first borrowers yeah. of the, uh, the belt of belt and road money. And the Maldives is one of them. The, the administration that had brought, had made the agreement with China initially has since been voted out of office. Mm-hmm. And Maldives is a semi, semi-democratic country. And, uh, they replaced in the elections. They replaced it with an administration that ran its campaign on being anti-BRI. Mm-hmm. So essentially, basically, what they're saying is, we can't pay it back. Sorry, China. You know, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. Yeah. And so at that point, China is either going to have to eat that cost, which is several billion dollars, and is unlikely, or they can. You know, they can try to do something militarily. They can put try to put sanctions on all that stuff. But that stuff's expensive. Yeah. That stuff is expensive too. So in a maybe lot of, another Sri Lanka. In a lot of ways, China itself, or maybe over time, yeah. gets into the, a lot of these bad these bad bets, mm-hmm. and that ultimately hurts itself, and it has to reel back or modify some yeah. of its um, some of its, its more predatory lending practices. Mm-hmm. So we can hope that that can happen organically. More than likely, it's going to take some pressure from mm-hmm. the outside world, and that insteps the United States. Mm-hmm. And how do you see the relationship between the United States and China playing out? I think it's really going to play out in the diplomatic um, sphere for um, control over, I mean, soft power, obviously, but um, just influence in, in, in many regions of the world, like Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America. Because the U.S. has kind of taken a step back when it comes to active diplomacy in these regions because they've relied so heavily on their soft power. But now that there are countries that are um, less or are increasing in um, their aversion to democracy, China's stepping in and saying, we're OK with you not being a democratic country. We're OK with you with human rights abuses. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. may not, but we are and we're willing to trade. So let's make a deal. And it's really hurting the U.S. And I understand for moral and ethical reasons why the U.S. would, you know, not want to set up specific trade deals with like Mozambique or Zimbabwe, Mm -hmm. um, for example, because of human rights abuses or, or, um, you know, uh, democratic issues. Sure. But there, it, it does go deeper than that, though. I mean, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, in a lot of ways, wasn't about the economic benefits because the United mm-hmm. States probably wasn't going to see much economic benefit from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But what it was is more geopolitical. Oh, and it's selling alliances. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. W- with that region. Oh, yeah. A region that is in the backyard of China. You know, mm-hmm. Vietnam and Indonesia were both member states. Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, states that were looking to the United States that are fairly more democratic and don't have as much human rights abuses as, say, Mozambique. Hmm. And they were looking to the United States to be a financial backer, to be that 
um, they be that heavyweight in their mm-hmm. corner with the United States pulling back its its commitments and going back into more of an isolationist state, more of a protectionist state using tariffs. We'll get into tariffs in a little bit. Um, yeah, I think you are seeing um, ultimately these countries are going to need to look for somewhere else to, to go as a as a major financial as a ma- major financial markets, and, that, and that's China. And China's there with open arms. Yeah. So they may not want to be in partnership with China, a country like a Viet- like Vietnam, mm-hmm. but ultimately they may have to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that is going to over time it's going to really erode U.S. influence over yeah. over over the around the world. And as the United States starts to see its power slip, how does it react? That is a great question, and really, we, we don't know. Um, one would hope that they would try to make more of a um, uh, effort to rev- uh, re- you know, re-involve themselves in um, trade partnerships with countries like Vietnam and Indonesia and try to be more of a leader that we historically have been uh, mm-hmm. in the world stage that it seems like we're taking a step back from. One would hope that we try to maybe make a second effort to really try and re- replan ourselves in the international stage where we're starting to kind of step back in certain regions that we shouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting because, you know, the, the United States coming out of World War II is really at the forefront of creating the, the world order that we know today. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, creating international institutions that foster cooperation, um, identifying the major pathways to war, which were political inst- uh, major areas where instability are in these areas, the likelihood of war goes up. And that's mm-hmm. uh, economics, finance, mm-hmm. and finance and development, and uh, security. Mm-hmm. And so the, the creation of the UN, the creation of the Bretton Woods, tw- Bretton Woods Twins, the, the GATT, which is the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, which later became the World Trade Organization, were all aimed at trying to soothe tensions between major powers and to give a format for long-term cooperation to where if a state has a grievance with with another state country has an uh, has an mm-hmm. grievance with another country they can go to these forums and there's arbitration like the world trade organization has an arbitration uh mechanism set up in it where if if a country feels like china is being unfair or the united states or whomever is being unfair if you're a member of the wto you can go and you can have a uh, a third party to mm-hmm. go through arbitration and there's a ruling and then deemed if the, if uh, the defending party or the plaintiff is deemed right and then there's corrections that are made so there's it's not per- it's not a perfect system i mean we can have a whole i mean we could do a, an entire episode on mm-hmm. the world trade organization and other international organizations but uh ultimately the united states set up this liberal world order and china is an illiberal power i mean it's a um, you know, it's an authoritative regime, and that stands in stark contrast with both its values and its morals and its and its vision for the world. And how does the how does that world that order that the United States has really benefited from in a lot of ways? How when the United States pulls back or in in kind of in a way un, actively undermines some of these institutions, there's an open roadmap for China to just remake this remake the order in their image versus yeah. in the United States's image. Yeah, absolutely, and. That gets us into a bit of a theory, and that's mm-hmm. we brought it up in the, in the introduction, and that's Thucydides' trap. Mm-hmm. And Thucydides' trap basically it gets its name from a Greek philosopher, Thucydides, who wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War. Mm-hmm. And Graham Allison, who's an author, he wrote a book on this. He wrote it, and there's a really good piece in the Atlantic that kind of is a six or seven page short summary of his book. But essentially what he's positing is that as if you have a single world hegemonist, a a sole superpower, 
And as a challenger arises, and as soon as when they start to reach parity, so equal, about equal footing, they go to war because mm-hmm. of structural. They go to war, and Graham Allison, in studying throughout history, is that he points to there's eleven out of fourteen times that there's been power transition. Mm-hmm. It has resulted in war between the two competing powers. Mm-hmm. So that's where he's kind of drawing from history and theory and everything. But just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I think it is a very interesting point that um, when the rivaling powers reach parity, that there is an equally high chance for them to go to war. Um, I I would probably think it's less likely just because the wars of like, you know, the First World War, um, previous wars, the one thing they didn't have was nuclear weapons. And nuclear weapons are a huge deterrent to actual armed conflict what we might be seeing is more of economic wars i think in my opinion okay. and and the, ch- and the change to a more um financial um and potentially even a cultural war between you know democratic democracy on one side and less democratic countries on the other and just trying to see you know who can sway more countries to follow who sure um because it really is to me unlikely that China or the U.S. would want to engage in a full-out war with each other because nuclear weapons w- will be involved. I mean, the 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 escalation doesn't just go from like you know, you know, soldiers to you know aircraft. I mean, it's soldiers to nukes, and I think it's nukes right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see really any middle ground. So, I believe Graham Allison has a really good historical point. I just think the one thing that weren't taken into account were nuclear weapons and how it affects how countries interact with each other militarily. Because during the World World War One, for example, yeah, absolutely, it would be very easy for you know Germany to declare war on France because France didn't have the ability to wipe Berlin off the map with just a drop of a bomb. There's a lot of literature in in international relations theory today and political science more broadly that is basically saying we have to kind of redefine what war is. And it's, it's going to probably take, it's going to be economic through tariffs. It's going to be cyber cyber attacks. Um, and that's huge. You know, the spread of disinformation campaigns by Russia has destabilized the West in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and China is also participating in those kind of tactics. Absolutely. And I think um, that's probably where you will see battle. The battlefield will be between computers more so than, than guys with guns. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that there are going to be any less costly in terms of oh, absolutely. in terms of resources um and uh in in, econ- in economic resources yeah yeah i think that's i think that's a really good point is really seeing the shift in where the battlefield is um but yeah it's it's really hard to say um what the future holds for us chinese relations um but at the current rate i mean uh graham allison has some very good points so at least that conflicts will arise and become more greater than they were before um again I don't believe it will be militarily, but when it comes to economics, you know, cyber um, terrorism, mm-hmm. it's going to get worse if, if, if his theory is. His theory correct. holds yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and there's, I still think they're quite a, quite a ways apart. How close China is compared to the, comparatively to the United States is a little overstated because if you look at yes, GDP numbers, China has been growing at a plus 10% GDP growth rate for a number of years that economists keep thinking is going to slow down and it quite hasn't but ultimately it will and it is showing signs of doing that the trade war has hurt them um the current trade war between the united states and china yeah i also think what's important too is that um with this you know rise of china and and economic because you were pointing it out 
China's GDP figures are thought by most economists to be kind of fudged a little bit. Um, and by fudged, I mean fixed, mm-hmm. so that they're not really reporting exact growth. So not to say that they're not growing, but it could be rather like 2% rather than 10%. Because in GDP terms, that's 10% is astronomical. Especially when you're talking about trillions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. And really, it's it could be... I don't want to say faked, but overstated mm-hmm. by the Chinese government. Well, and if you look at their purchasing power parity, which yeah. is a more in-depth number than just overall mm-hmm. growth, domestic, growth, growth, gross. gross domestic product, I'll cut that, um, is gross domestic product is just a macro number. Mm. Purchasing power parity, I think, gives a little bit more of, a, of an inside look, and that is how much the average citizen can purchase with their country's currency. And the disparity, disparity between... The, someone in the United States' is per, uh, PPP versus someone in China is vastly different. Mm-hmm. And I still that shows a much higher amount of economic power than, say, China would. Yeah, China it's, it's leaves some bounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, I think that's a good point to bring up is that really, if you're looking at it comparatively, I don't think they're as close as most people believe China mm-hmm. is to be to the United States. Not to say that China isn't rising and not to say that China isn't becoming an increasing power. But to say, even just looking purely at economics, that they're remotely close to the United States is, I think, a little preemptive. Mm-hmm. Um, even militarily, I mean, it's really not that comparable. They just built their first, you know, aircraft carrier yeah. um, within the last year, year or two. I mean, it's really not comparable mm-hmm. um, at this point to say that they're on the same footing as the United States. But that doesn't mean they couldn't be one day. Yeah, and so we're talking about few. When we're talking about Thucydides' trap. This is yeah. definitely in the future. Um, but yeah. I just wanted. I think it was. Int- it's it's good to point out that we're we're not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. So, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned or we shouldn't um, take into consideration and start formulating policy mm-hmm. um, that I think tries to combat some of China's more, you know, poor policies. Yeah. And especially with the Belt and Road Initiative, because mm-hmm. that is that is directly affecting human rights around mm-hmm. around the world. Um, so. All right, so on that note, uh, we need to take another break and hear from our sponsors. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about current areas of tension between China and the United States. In this segment, um, we we finished up the BRI and we talked about some future stuff. I think we need to bring it back and get a little more grounded. We're kind of in the weeds there with theory. So I think we're going to get back to a little bit more of... uh, some you know current areas of strife between China and the United States. So um, you've been listening to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. And we'll be right back. KXRW would like to thank our friends at New Vansterdam for supporting our programming. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges, and edibles to CBD topicals, oils, and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Taproom and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events include wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Taproom and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop-in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, 
Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.say-chow.com. That's www.say-chow.com or directly at 360-210-5522. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. In our last segment, we talked about the Belt and Road Initiative, um, which is a Chinese policy that looks to... um, give loans and grants out to countries for um, development developmental projects. But as we've noted, it, it is rife with, uh, with problems and consequences. And then we talked a little bit about potential for war between China and the United States. On a theoretical basis, I'm talking about uh, power transition theory as China reaches closer in economic and political parity with the United States. Um, so now we're going to talk about a, about potential areas of, of conflict between the United between the United States and China that are more occurring today, mm-hmm. and so did you want to you know take that off? Yeah, for the first one, I think we should look at is the most obvious is the South China Sea. Okay, um, and for those of you who don't know where the South China Sea is, it's off the um, uh, east coast of Vietnam, uh, north of Indonesia, and just south of China. Obviously, sure. hence the South China Sea. Um, but it's a very key area for trade. Um, a, a vast majority of the world's trade eventually flows through the South China Sea, um, obviously reaching markets in China, Japan, Korea, okay. so on and so forth. Um, the problem is um, there is a specific portion of the South China Sea, I believe called the Nine Dash Line. Mm-hmm. And it's what China believes is their rightful um, claim to territorial waters that okay. they have active rights to that most countries in the region heavily dispute especially countries like vietnam and the philippines Mm -hmm. um but in that nine dash line what they are doing is building islands um out of nowhere specifically Mm -hmm. on coral reefs old man-made islands that's crazy yeah um essentially to establish um military bases and lay claim to the region so to further cement their claims to the territorial waters and are they using international law to to justify like with building these islands like obviously because i think the way that it works is international law through the un is that you have so many s- square miles mm-hmm. around land mass that yeah. you can claim as your ocean yeah and the more these they build these islands it extends yes how much area they own of the ocean yeah. surrounding those islands so i think that's kind of the uh, if I, my understanding is that that is kind of that that's what is driving them building this nine dash line. Yeah, they also laid some historical claims to the region, but really, um, it's kind of manipulating the system. Where if we have islands there, we get the water around those islands, and they've built countless amounts of islands around there, and they're not very impressively big islands. They're just enough to fit a military base on. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is causing a lot of tension, not just between the U.S. And, and China, but specifically Vietnam, Indonesia, Philippines, um, a lot of the, the Southeast Asian countries. Sure. Because now they can't get access to resources that they believe are theirs, um, like oil, uh, offshore oil deposits. The trade has to go through China. Some trade routes have to, to reach mm-hmm. Vietnam or fi- the Philippines, which also causes a lot of problems. But also when the U.S. is sailing their you know battleships through the region, China is extremely upset because they say you're in our waters and the U.S. claims, well, we're in international waters. The islands you made are not laying legitimate claim to any of the international space. Yeah. So you have a you have the discrepancy in the, in the recognition of mm-hmm. whose water it is. And mm-hmm. that can obviously create a lot of tensions. Yeah. Um, 
I was thinking also with China's trade policies mm-hmm. and they like we kind of mentioned it in the last segment, but you know, money manipulation and you know, they do they do a lot of currency manipulating practices mm-hmm. and they kind of work within the current. We were talking about the liberal world order. Mm-hmm. They kind of work within those institutions to to give themselves an advantage. But mm-hmm. on the other side, aren't playing by the the other rules that would say you know, keep them from taking full advantage. So mm-hmm. essentially what they're, you know, they're, they're, they're manipulating trade, they're manipulating their currency, but then they want to be able to have act. They still have access to those world, you know, to world trade organizations, um, low, low amount of tariffs. So yeah. they're basically creating cheaper goods through having state owned industries that they can put out onto the, into the open market that basically undercut other you know, other nations' products in the same markets that are higher priced because of areas like trade unions and open competition within democratic countries that have free markets, where there's not state-owned companies, and ultimately because there's competition there, the prices is generally a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. And whereas a state-owned company, they can just go for 100% efficiency and cut. And, un- and they basically what they're doing is they're undercutting um, the world price on a lot of these on, on a lot of these products which gives them advantage on trade around the world yeah. and that's been one of the united states's biggest complaints with china is that they're doing this they're doing this practice yeah and my question is like how do they end up in the world trade organization in the first place mm-hmm. and a lot of that has to do with actual u.s foreign policy during the 90s the clinton administration felt that as china began to open up we talked about this in the first segment is that there was an opening there for further you know liberalization of china's political system mm-hmm. and they thought by bringing them into into organizations like the wto that it would over time democratize china and bring them into more of the fold since creating and taking an adversarial nation to an ally and that doesn't seem to be happening no it doesn't it really points to the fact that China is doing everything it can within the confines of the liberal world order to manipulate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they do a good job. Sometimes they do a pretty egregious job. Um, and so I think uh, looking at um, the South China Sea, for example, that's kind of a good example of them literally building islands to fit within the confines of we get specific, you know, um, miles of uh, ocean from these islands mm-hmm. to um, claim as our own. Um, technically, that's correct. But when you build the islands out of nowhere, it really raises the um, question of how is that legal? And most international organizations think it's not. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard because there is no hard law internationally. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, domestically in the United States, if you break the law, there is an enforcer. Yeah. In the international stage, there isn't. The UN can say this is law, but ultimately, with if unless it has power to enforce it, mm-hmm. which the UN doesn't have a military, no. it can't enforce it. So it relies on cooperation and adherence to uh, procedure, and in in you know, and basically, kind of just a, this belief in the greater good that we're going to do this because we want to be seen as a, as a you know cooperating country. But if a, if a state like China wants to be a stick in the mud and basically say we're not going to abide by it, mm-hmm. ultimately what are you left with? In the United, mm-hmm. it's it's the United States and other powers having to come together to 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 do to do things either militarily or through tariffs or through other means, mm-hmm. like sanctions, which ultimately are tariffs, mm-hmm. to try to change China's behavior. And I think that at the base of it, I think that is in a lot of ways like Trump's 
President Trump's, um, you know, trade war is that without using military, which we don't want to use against no, China. Yeah, yeah, of course not. What other ways can you try to curb their behavior? Hmm. And I think Trump is right to call out China's abuses and to use tariffs to try to get them to, to change that behavior. Mm-hmm. With you know, trying to get them to reel back the BRI and trying to get them to stop being currency manipulators and yeah. not putting state-owned products on yeah. the market and also being part of the WTO. Yeah, all of that is is a good goal, but the problem is, is it's undercut by the fact that the president has opened a trade war on our allies too. Mm-hmm. So we're not we're not a unified front against China, who's the second biggest market economic market in the world with a growing influence by creating debt trap by using debt trap diplomacy to get essentially raw resources from Africa and Southeast Asia funneled in at a cheap price into them. So they can weather a a economic storm from the United States. If it's just a, if it's just a one-on-one fight, but because we're also fighting with Europe, there has, there isn't a unified front that it's going to take to try to curb, China, and that's my biggest complaint yeah. with uh, with with Trump's overall yeah. use of tariffs. Absolutely, I, I think it's a fair point to to bring to the attention is that um, lacking this unified front really doesn't put the impact that a, a potential trade war could have with China if it was if it had more unified backing. Sure. Also, looking at with the trade war, um, China really has shown that they can influence Europe more with their trade policy saying like, we're not the ones who started this. The U S is we are willing to negotiate when really they, they haven't been negotiating at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're able to point at, you know, president Trump saying like, Oh yeah, he's the one who started this trade war when really, yeah, there have been flagrant abuses of, of financial systems. Um, A good example is also like intellectual theft um, for, for intellectual property. Mm -hmm. Um, China is, egregiously steals intellectual property yeah. and then builds products that are cheaper and sends them out to the world market. Um, President Trump rightfully has criticized China for doing so. Yeah. But again, if there's not enough unified backing, the effects won't be as significant as they could be. No, and, and China has actually taken measures to go elsewhere. Yeah. And they are actually... Negoti- renegotiating. I've read. I read in the uh, the Economist the other day that China has act is actually starting to um, reach um, trade deals where they're buying products from their BRI borrowers. Mm-hmm. So in a way, they're they're. It's not obviously they're hurt by the United States, but they know that they can withstand it because mm-hmm. the United States has elections, and every four mm-hmm. years you could be dealing with a different regime. Whereas Xi Jinping getting rid of term limits and. He can. He's a. He knows he can play a long-term game. Yeah. And it's going to be really hard to beat China both in the short run and the long run by yourself. Yeah. And I think that that is ultimately the biggest complaint with the president's uh, foreign policy is that you know America, America first, really leaves America alone. Mm-hmm. And it, in some of its greatest foreign policy challenges in the in this century, is going to need its allies in order to accomplish it absolutely and I, f- I feel like putting tariffs on our closest allies of you know france and england and germany as much as yes they there might be trade abuses you know the, e- the eu being a single market i mean that that in itself is is a can is a problem for u.s manufacturers mm-hmm. i get that all of that is an issue but what's the greater threat mm-hmm. in my opinion it's china yeah. and trying to fight all wars at one time by yourself stretches you too thin yeah 
in it's whether that is with hard power militarily and you have too many fronts or it's economic it's an economic war where you're fighting with tariffs on all fronts you st- you're stretched too thin yeah and ultimately it's the u.s manufacturers and the u.s consumers that get hurt the yeah. most because that's what tariffs are regardless of what the administration says a tariff is a tax on domestic consumption mm-hmm. it's it's the importer who pays the tax when there's a tariff it, it's not coming it's when united when president trump and the administration the united states puts a tariff on china it's not that china is paying a a tax to the united states it's the person buy, it's the company or the person who's buying chinese products in the united states that ultimately pays that tax mm-hmm. so it, it it tariffs is a form of domestic taxation yeah, to deter the, the domestic buyer from buying the product exactly and then to protect i mean ultimately what it does is it does protect domestic production in the short term which is why a lot of countries use tariffs especially in areas where if you're a smaller nation you only have one or two main exports you want to try to protect those industries mm-hmm. so you use tariffs on those products whereas a country like the united states is a very diversified economy and tariffs i don't think are as useful mm-hmm. in my opinion but um that's a bit in the weeds about <laughs> about trade what other areas of tension do you see between the united states and china i think the other one is really um dealing with again i i hesitate on diplomacy just because that's tension everywhere but looking at specific key regions like um tibet which granted is a part of china technically yeah. um the tibetanese believe they're an independent state and it affects diplomacy around the world for example i believe it was the czech republic um he recently hosted the dalai lama in prague and um china anytime the dalai lama goes anywhere in a country hosts them china has a fit about it because the dalai lama is kind of the head of the tibetan people he's kind of their head of state in a way but he's more of a he's a religious leader but he has that kind of quasi religious and state role um and so china wants you know there to be repercussions for this um, most of the world, for the most part, is able to be like, no, that's ridiculous. He's welcome to come to our country. This isn't an issue. Sure. But he has been able to influence, um, or, or China has been able to influence um, some states to not allow the Dalai Lama to come in um, because of key trade deals. Interesting. Um, okay. So um, what's the ties between the Czech Republic and, and China then? They're not huge. Okay. Um, but it's just one thing to point out that like China wants to build, well, China has been trying to get better trade deals with the Czech Republic for some things, but um, this could cause a hamper in that. Um, and maybe the Czech Republic may no longer host the Dalai Lama if he wants to come in or, or something like that. Um, th- that's one specific example, but I mean, other like artists from the United States have, um, been banned from going to China because they've openly critiqued, um, Chinese history or, or foreign policy. Um, for example, Taylor Swift, sure. she's been banned from China because one of her shirts, I believe referenced the Tiananmen Square massacre, but it's this repetitive behavior of lashing out at countries, artists, organizations like Facebook for openly critiquing them what happens next like no one can call out china for anything um so it worries me when it comes to the diplomatic stage china will be willing to be more egregious with how they critique countries um to kind of uh, kowtow them into following what they want sure i mean i think that ultimately what that is is a barometer of chinese power yeah if china wasn't a powerful nation if this was say somewhere in africa saying we don't want this political dissident yeah. to come to another country they're ultimately powerless to do yeah. anything about it but the fact that some countries are listening and changing their behavior based on china's economic or military threat 
mm-hmm. shows that they have real tangible power in the international system, yeah. more so than I think they've had since, well, probably in the last century, really. Yeah, really. And uh, yeah, I mean, that gets, that gets back to how do you go about trying to curb it? I think one of the biggest areas you would point to would be hopefully is institutionally through mm-hmm. institutional ra- arrangements that, you know, China is a, mem- is a, you know, permanent security council member on the UN. Um, they are the second biggest lender within the International Monetary Fund. They created the Asian Infrastructure Bank, which we really haven't talked about, which is a, it it coincides with the Belt and Road Initiative, but it's a multilateral development bank where they have, they've, where other countries, including a lot of European powers, England is actually a um, a lender within the Asian Infrastructure Bank. And it's very open and very um, transparent. Mm -hmm. And it's it's in stark contrast to the BRI. So it's almost weird that China has almost two faces on the international stage. On one hand, they look like they're they are they're being a player and a cooperator within the established world system. But on the other hand, you see this darker underbelly of trying to um, curb free speech, yeah. uh, not only domestically, which they human rights abuses and um, you know crackdowns on political dissonance within China has always been a problem and becoming more so. We're seeing it in Hong Kong. But also abroad, you know, with the whole NBA issue. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's interesting as who is, it's hard to really know who China is. Mm-hmm. And I think that you have to, this just brings me back to Xi Jinping, is that um, ultimately you can try to drive China's interests and the ideas that they're operating on based off of Xi Jinping as an individual. Because I don't think you can really, I think, I think economy in her book, third um the third revolution really makes a good point that you can't separate the two at this point because power has been consolidated so much around xi that his interests are china's interests Mm -hmm. would you agree with that yeah i think that's really uh, a good way of summarizing it um but it is interesting to see like how china can be so two-faced because they still get loans from you know a lot of organizations because they are considered a developing country yeah um because they kind of suppress portions of their economics to fit that standard so mm-hmm. they get cheaper loans well and a lot of their population is still very rural in and yeah. in underdeveloped oh absolutely so yeah they're they're able to 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 get certain uh favorable trade statuses through the world trade organization and i think the institutional arrangements you hope that can soothe just seem to not be enough yeah and so i i don't have an answer for how to uh, change this. And this is one of the biggest questions within foreign policy experts is how do we go about confronting China? Yeah. And, but I think ultimately it's how we, how the United States went about curbing the Soviet union. And that was with a, with a, with a, uh, a unified, I, I just come back to this unified front NATO and was, was paramount, not just with, not just with security, but getting on the same page economically to be able to, um, to push back against mm-hmm. Uh, an authoritative state like yeah. like the Soviet Union in in China. Yeah, absolutely. So as we're we're nearing the end of this episode, uh, Matt, do you have any uh, any final any final thoughts? Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that um, when it comes to U.S. foreign policy in handling the the rise of China, it's important to realize that we cannot handle this challenge alone. Um, even though we are a, a superpower, it's important to have it's important to have allies. It's necessary to have allies, and we need to continue cultivating and reaffirming our alliances with the nations we have and seeking to build stronger relations and and, uh, alliances with um, other nations Mm -hmm. Um, because this is a problem that can't be solved by us on our own 
because very few major challenges can be whether it was the second world war whether it was the you know um uh, 9-11 attacks mm-hmm. we did not solve all of the problems by ourselves even though we are a very powerful country and 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 we um are the largest economy in the world and have the largest military you have to have allies being alone in the world is not something that we can do um or, or will work in our favor no and it if you think that a lot of our foreign engagements whether diplomatically or militarily are expensive they're gonna be a lot more expensive to carry out u.s interests if we didn't have that 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 alliance those alliances that we can draw back from really there's been no state that has benefited from the current world system more than the united states and yes there's there's a lot of dissatisfaction with it and i'm not trying to undercut that but overall the world system has worked out really well in the United States' benefit. And do we want to ask ourselves, ultimately, with, by pulling back from our engagements, are we comfortable with China supplanting that role and being the, being that, the norm, like the norm creator and basically the, the, the leader of the international system? Yeah. So I, I think it's, the, I do believe it's the greatest challenge um, in our, in our, that our generation is going to face. Yeah. Um, how it's going to play out, I think we're still in the developing stages, as we've kind of discovered. Mm-hmm. But um, there's still a lot of things to think about. And yeah, um, I think this has been a good episode. I'm, I'm Thank you all for listening. Um, you're listening to To The Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. Have a great weekend. Support for KXRW comes from David's Trains, buyer and collector of old toy trains, including Lionel, Flyer, Ives, and Marks. He is interested in old transportation-related toys as well as toy trains from the late 1800s to the 1960s. For appraisal, you can call him at 360-576-1602. That's 360-576-1602. Carpet City of Vancouver is a local flooring business and family-owned for 44 years. Flooring options include carpet, hardwood, laminate, tile, stone, and countertops. Carpet City of Vancouver is more than just a flooring specialty store. They are expert trained in flooring and design for kitchens, living rooms, bedrooms, and bathrooms. Carpet City of Vancouver can help you find the floor for the way you want to live. More information available at www.carpetcityofvancouver.com.